All right, let's jump into our message. Uh, we are going to be talking tonight about Emmanuel, God with us. And we're going to be tracing the presence of God through redemptive history. So the idea here of Jesus in the shadows is that in the Old Testament, we have 39 books. And in those 39 books, Jesus is there. He is not missing. He is present. However, his presence is often shadowed. And what we need is we need the New Testament to shine its light on the Old Testament so we can see Jesus more clearly. That's what this sermon series is about, this four-week adventure in the Old Testament through Advent. So the first week we did Jesus fulfilling the Sabbath. Last week we looked at uh, Jesus being the bronze serpent who was lifted up in the wilderness Jesus in John 3 said, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up. And today we're going to look at God's presence throughout the whole Bible. And I'm going to try to go really fast. What I've told myself in my head is you have to just move as fast as you possibly can. You know, do you guys ever listen to audiobooks on two or 1.5? And it's like, blah, 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 blah. that's my plan. I'm just going to fly tonight because we're going to go literally Genesis to Revelation. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be awesome. But we're going to skip a bit. So don't worry, we're going to skip a bit. So let me pray and ask God for grace because we do need his help and we need his, his presence to be near us to illuminate his word. So let's pray together and ask for God's presence and help as we dig into his word. Father, we thank you for your word. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Father, by it, we know you. By it, we know the gospel. By it, we have spiritual light to guide us through the spiritual darkness that is so prevalent. Father, you speak to us through your word. And I pray now that you would do that. I pray that you would speak to us through your word. Let us see Jesus in brilliant light. May our hearts be warmed to him. And may we see our need of him and may we see his availability to us. Help us now by your spirit, Father, please. Give us a gripping attention. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. So the name Emmanuel means God with us. God with us, that's what it means. So when we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, we're saying God with us. It's the name that Jesus was given. It's a prophecy in Isaiah. And God with us goes all the way back to the very beginning. In Genesis, in fact, God walked with our first parents. This is Genesis 3, eight to nine. And it reads, and they, this would be Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool, that word also means wind or breeze, in the cool or wind or breeze of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now, if you know Genesis chapter one and two, God creates the heavens and the earth and he creates all the creatures that dwell in the sea, all the creatures that dwell in the air and all the creatures that creep about 
on the, the ground and all the cattle and livestock, the beasts of the field. And then on day six, he creates man and he creates man and woman in his own image, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And what we have in Genesis chapters one and two is God near our first parents. His presence was very tangible. In fact, they were in a sense face to face with God, though God is a spirit and he doesn't have a face. His presence was with them. What we think of as intimacy, as face to face conversation, nearness and presence, Adam and Eve had that. And this chapter three, verse eight, is an echo of what had already been happening before our first parents sinned against God. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now this was normal. God would take uh, present, he would make his presence manifest to them often. And this time was different because they had sinned against them. They did what they were not supposed to do. They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so now they're hiding. They're naked. They realize they're naked. They're ashamed and they're hiding because they're guilty. They are afraid of God and they're ashamed to be seen by him. They don't want this face-to-face interaction anymore. They want to hide from him because of their guilt and their shame. But in a sense, this is beautiful. God always comes after his children when they're hiding. God always comes after his children when they're wallowing in shame and they don't want to see him. Did you know that shame has to do with eyes looking at you in your guilt? That's why when someone feels ashamed, they'll often look down or they'll like cover their face or someone says something that makes someone embarrassed and they'll, they'll like cover their eyes. You ever do that? It's almost instinctive. And what it is, it's about either you seeing people seeing you in your guilt or you having to look at somebody and you're embarrassed. That's what shame is. It it has to do with being seen in your guilt. You don't want to be seen. And so this is Adam and Eve hiding from God. And we have been doing the same ever since. Now, what's beautiful is even when we run from God and hide from him, God is happily coming after us. Okay. God comes after us. Now I don't have time, but I want to show you uh, the people that talked to God directly. Did you know that in chapter six, Noah begins to talk with God and God directly talks with Noah. Okay. After that, we have Abraham in chapters 12 of Genesis and on. And Abraham talks directly to God and God talks directly to him. So God's presence, his voice is heard, his nearness is with Abraham. Then Abraham has a son named Isaac and Isaac also talks with God and God talks with him. From there, uh, you have Jacob and Jacob receives word from the Lord. And then probably the most famous Old Testament character is Moses, okay? Moses is pursued by God and God talks with him with audible voice and with nearness of presence, okay? And so let me recap before we jump into Moses for a second. Our first parents had the presence of God, face-to-face intimacy, we lost or they lost that face-to-face intimacy because they sinned. Now, if you know that story that I was recounting a minute ago, God did something about their shame and their fear and their guilt. He killed an animal as a substitute for them. He covered their nakedness with leather, with clothing, which was a sacrifice that pictured the ultimate sacrifice. Okay? And they were okay to then go out into now a cursed world, uh, a land that would war against them. 
animals that would war against them, weather that would war against them. And yet they would have God's presence through a sacrificial system, God doing the first animal sacrifice. And then we know that there was a sacrificial system initiated there because Adam and Eve have two children, Cain and Abel, and Cain and Abel are doing sacrifices without the mandate in Leviticus and Numbers in Deuteronomy. So there were sacrifices before the priesthood and the Old Testament uh, sacrificial system. This was a way that guilt could be, could be put on an, an animal or a sacrifice or uh, a person could confess their guilt, make a sacrifice, and God would accept it. We know from the New Testament all pointing to the ultimate sacrifice, the capital S sacrifice. So Moses is a, a, a giant character in the Old Testament. And he is born uh, into Jewish parents and he makes it into Pharaoh's own household uh, because Pharaoh is going to kill all of the baby uh, Israelites. And Moses' mother puts him into a little basket, sends him down the Nile. He just so happens to land uh, right at Pharaoh's daughter's bathing place. She scoops him up and she begins to parent him. And he becomes literally a a son of Pharaoh. And so he is brought up with all the Egyptian wisdom, all of the Egyptian gods, all of the Egyptian understanding, all of the education. And one day he sees one of his fellow Israelites being mistreated by an Egyptian. Uh, His people were slaves at the time by the Egyptians. And he then kills this Egyptian for mistreating one of his fellow Israelites. And word gets out and Moses is afraid. And so he runs into the desert and he's in the desert of Midian and he finds a shepherd and a man named Jethro and Jethro takes him in uh, kind of like a son and he ends up marrying Jethro's daughter. And so he is now in the family and he's out one day tending the flocks of Jethro, his father-in-law. And this is what happens. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And so what hails after this story is God begins to speak to Moses out of this bush. And a relationship is then developed between Moses and God, where God speaks to Moses consistently, time after time, after time, after time. And so Moses becomes like a friend of God. It's amazing. Uh, No one up until this point, at least in the Bible, do we know of God speaking to someone so often with so many words and so clearly. And Moses had this unique intimacy with God. Now, if you remember the story, um, what happens after this is God shows himself to the Israelites and to the Egyptians by 10 plagues. The 10th plague being uh, that the, the firstborn son of every household who did not have the blood of a lamb on the doorpost, on the, on the top and then on the sides, uh, the death angel would pass over as the 10th plague and kill the firstborn of the house of both animal and persons. Okay? And so the firstborn uh, did die. And then finally, Pharaoh let the Israelites go into the wilderness with Moses and Aaron. And so many, 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 Israelites, Exodus, with an E-D, Exodus, Egypt, into the wilderness. And God begins to show himself now, not just to Moses, but to the people by a pillar of cloud by day and what? 
and a pillar of fire by night. Exodus 13, 21 says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them among the way and a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. And so God's presence was being manifest in this cloud, this glory cloud during the day and this glory of fire during the night. Now that does kind of look like a tornado cloud of fire. That's what I imagine it to be. All we're told is it's some kind of pillar and it's made of fire at night. It's God's presence. And then it's some kind of pillory cloud during the day. And now what the next stage of redemptive history is this. God is going to set up his presence in the midst of his people. As they travel through the wilderness, God is going to be present in the middle of them. Does anyone know where God decides to dwell. Huh? Okay, so so the Ark of the Covenant is the place where the stone tablets would be kept. But where was where was the Ark of the Covenant kept? Okay, the tabernacle. All right, good. So the tabernacle then becomes this place where, look at the shift here. It goes from individuals talking and being with God to now God is going to be among his people. Emmanuel, God with us. The Israelites are God's people and now God's presence is going to be in the midst of them. Let's read this together. Exodus 33, seven to 11. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. Now this actually is prior to the tabernacle, believe it or not. This is a tent that Moses would go outside of the Israelite camp millions of of Israelites, and he would then go outside the camp and he would have this tent where he would meet with God and God would speak to him. And he called it the tent of meeting and everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. So what we have here is Moses would set up this tent outside of the camp and he would literally speak to God face to face. Do you notice that part there? It's, um, it's right there in verse 11. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. So God had this friend relationship with Moses And then he instructs Moses to build a tabernacle. Here it is, Exodus 25, eight to nine. And then let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. You see that? Dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, you shall make. Now, this is what the tabernacle looked like. It's an artistic rendering. We think it looked like this. So this is about 1400, uh, I'm sorry, 1450 BC. And the pillar of smoke there, you can see it's not as, not as spectacular as you might hope. But again, this is an artistic rendering. Uh, there is the tabernacle tent. There is 
the altar, there's the tables where the sacrifices would be made. The, the laver there is where the priests would do the ceremonial washings. And inside of that tabernacle, which is a tent, there was a space in there called the Holy of Holies. And it was where God's presence was. It's where God's presence dwelt. And so God is among his people. He's dwelling among them as God. Now, what we have from here is we have uh, the cloud covering the tabernacle when it was finished. Then the Lord, this is Exodus 40, 34 to 38. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle throughout all their journeys. Whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out till the di- till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and the fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journey. So get this picture. Uh, The tabernacle was in the midst of the people. Their tents are all around. Imagine like hundreds of thousands of tents and then this one tent in the middle looking something like this. And so all around this tabernacle would be the people of Israel, and there would be the cloud above it by day, and then there would be the cloud of fire above it by night. And what would happen is when God wanted to move them, the cloud would lift up from above the tent, and they knew, uh oh, it's time to go. And so they would literally take this whole thing down. They would take it apart piece by piece, and all the Israelites would take down all their tents and pack up all their belongings. Then they would move to a different space, and when the cloud would stop, it was time to camp here. Now, this happened over and over and over for 40 years until the generation that was faithless died off. Can you imagine that? Breaking this thing down probably hundreds, maybe thousands of times. Breaking, like putting all your belongings away, putting it on animals, putting it on your back, putting it on carts, and then having to stop and put it all back up again. But yet, here's the beautiful thing. God is in their midst even through that. He's present with them. This is what I find Amazing. So the cloud represented God's presence, but the, the inner part, which the tent of meeting actually moves inside of the tabernacle. In fact, that's why uh, the, the first verse there, 34 says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So it moved from being outside the camp, this tent where Moses would go and meet with God. It moved to kind of inside the tent, inside the tabernacle where uh, Moses would meet with God. And the sacrifices were done at the tabernacle, and this is, was the centerpiece of the worship of God. Now, when the Israelites finally did make it into the promised land, uh, they, they got a king, and his name was Saul. And that king was replaced by another king from the tribe of Judah. His name was David. David wanted to build a permanent dwelling for God, a temple. But God said, no, you will not be the one to build the temple. You have blood on your hands. You're a man of war. Rather, your son will build me my temple. And if you follow uh, the, the text in 1 Kings 8, 9 to 11, Solomon, David's son, does build a temple. It replaces the tabernacle. 
up until Solomon builds the temple, which is a permanent structure in Jerusalem, uh, the tent of meeting was still the place where the people met with God and did sacrifices. Now, there was nothing, this is 1 Kings 8, 9 to 11. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets, the stone that Moses put there at Horeb. Now, if you remember the story there, Moses receives uh, the 10 commandments on two tablets of stone and he broke the first two because there was a golden calf incident. And so God made him two more. These are the 10 commandments uh, referenced here, uh, the two tablets of stone, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. What's happening here in 1 Kings 8 is the temple is built and it's the first day that the temple is being dedicated and the Ark of the Covenant is being brought into the Holy of Holies, into the temple. Now the Ark of the Covenant was where uh, God's presence was to dwell where the angels had their wings. There was this mercy seat. It was a lid. It was where the sacrifice would be, would be splattered to make atonement for the people once a year on the day of atonement. Uh, and I know I'm flying through redemptive history, but I did warn you I was going to do this. Okay. So that was what was happening with the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark, which was kind of like a chest, uh, think of it as a case, all, all decked out with gold. It was a beautiful thing, but it was a dangerous thing because even if you touched it, uh, you would die. And that did happen, if you remember, uh, with Uzzah. He, he touched the ark and he died instantly because God's presence is so holy for sin to touch the holiness of God's presence, uh, you die instantly, okay? And so God was showing by that story uh, that I am holy and you are unholy. You are only to come to me by the means and methods that I set up for you. And the means and the method were, were sacrifice. And the means and method for sacrifice for the whole people of, of Israel was the day of atonement and the sacrifice of atonement that was once a year. So no one could go into the center of the temple, the holy of holies. Only one person once a year, the, the high priest, he could go in on the day of atonement and he could make atonement for all the people of Israel. Okay, that happened once a year on the day of atonement. That holy of holies, no one was to go into. And it was separated uh, from the holy place with this giant curtain, I mean, massive, tall curtain. And it was a cube, okay? So God's presence was manifest. It was actually there. It was localized inside the tent of meeting, then inside the tabernacle, now inside the temple in the holy of holies, okay? Do you see the progression here? So now God is dwelling in the temple and the temple gets destroyed, Okay, the temple is destroyed and it needs to be rebuilt. But what, what, what does happen is the, the temple does get rebuilt. And by the time we get to the first century, uh, the temple is almost done being constructed and Emmanuel shows up. Okay, so now I'm going to jump to the New Testament. And Emmanuel means God with us. Okay, that's the name that Jesus was given by the angel so Matthew chapter 1, 20 to 25, I know you guys know this, this text. It's a famous Christmas text. The he here is Joseph, who is betrothed to Mary, the Virgin Mary, to be married to him. And at this time, they have not known each other intimately. And yet she is pregnant with a child. And so Joseph knows, not mine, 
And so he is a, a righteous man and he is thinking of divorcing her quietly, not having uh, her put to death because that was allowed by the law of Moses, not having her public shamed, which publicly shamed, which was allowed to be done. Rather, he's going to do this quietly. I'm just going to separate from her quietly. Let's read the story. But as he, Joseph, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sin. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. Now this prophecy is found in Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now Matthew, who wrote the gospel of Matthew, sees the fulfillment of Isaiah 7, 14 as this story. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet the prophet Isaiah. Behold, he quotes, he quotes Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So the temple is still in existence here in Jerusalem. Jesus is born in the city of David, the city of Bethlehem. And this is fulfilling prophecy uh, that God will come and be with his people. Now, what I want you to look at for just a minute in the center of this text is this. Why is his name to be called Jesus? Verse 21, she will bear a son, the virgin, and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sin. Think about this. Jesus is not even born yet and he has a mission. His mission is, is to save his people from their sin. Notice the his people. Jesus has a people. And his mission is to save his people. Now, friends, I just want you to think, Isaiah was written 700 years before Jesus came on the scene, and it was prophesied that he would come. And why would he come? To save his people from their sins. If we were to go all the way back to Genesis chapter three, verse 15, there was a prophecy given about uh, the snake and the woman and the seed of the woman. And this is paraphrased how it goes. God is cursing the serpent for deceiving Eve and having her eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as he's cursing the serpent, he says, I will put enmity, strife, discord between you and the woman between your seed and her seed. You will bruise his head. I'm sorry, you will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. Okay? And so th this is pictured as 
the serpent striking the heel of the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman is this one, this Jesus who will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins by the serpent striking his heel. What is that referencing? The cross. How is Jesus going to save his people from their sins? He's going to die on a Roman cross as a substitute, as a sacrifice. All the Old Testament sacrifices pointing to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And so Jesus came to save his people from their sins, but this was the plan ever since Genesis chapter three. It's not that God was trying to figure this out through redemptive history. At the first sin, God had the plan in place. And then if we read Revelation, Jesus actually is called the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Meaning that sin and the cross and redemption was all in the plan before day one, he said, let there be light. Now only God can do this. Only God can map out human history before it even starts. But this is our God, friends. How would we know this unless we had a Bible that clearly showed us these things? And so we had God's presence in the garden. We lost it. God begins to sprinkle his presence with people, various people. You remember Noah to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses. And now he's going to be among his people in the tabernacle and then in the temple. But now God comes himself as a person. And his name is God with us. This is the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what's called the incarnation. Jesus in body, he became his own creation. He came through the reproductive system of a woman, which he himself created, which is amazing to me. He himself became what he was not. He took on humanity, which he was not prior to. God added to his deity, humanity. This is amazing. This is the story of Emmanuel. Now, what do we do then with the tabernacle and with the temple, with with those old signs of God's presence? Well, the Bible tells us what to do with them. In John 1, 14, John says this about Jesus. Jesus is called the word, the logos in chapter one. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory, as of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. Now the English does not do us the beauty of redemptive history. But did you know that this word dwell is the word tabernacle? Literally, it's tabernacle. So what this means is, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. What does that mean? Well, God's presence was in the tabernacle with the people of God for 40 years and up until the temple. That means that God's same presence, the same presence that was in the tabernacle is now here in a person, Emmanuel. And so the tabernacle finds its fulfillment in Jesus the real manifest presence of God in flesh and bones with veins and eyeballs and eardrums and a tongue that spoke Aramaic. 
and quoted the Psalms and quoted Isaiah and quoted Moses. He fulfills the tabernacle. But more than that, in John 2, if we were to travel to verse 18, so the Jews said to him, the hymn is Jesus. And so here's the context. The context is Jesus had just come into the temple and he tore the place apart. You remember that story? He was real angry that the court of the Gentiles where Gentiles could come and worship God. Uh, there was all kind of animals being traded and sold and money exchanging going on. And there's actually extortion happening uh, in, in the, the rates of exchange. People were getting ripped off by the religious system. And Jesus is really angry. And so he, he literally takes tables and he flips them over. He makes a whip and he's whipping people and whipping animals and he's just causing chaos. He's clearing out the temple. And so the religious leaders, the temple guards and the, and the priests and the chief priests, what are you doing? So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us that you do these things? Who gave you the right and authority to do this kind of stuff? And amazingly, he's not arrested. He's not like put to death on the spot. And he's able to have a conversation with them after all this. Isn't that kind of amazing? Jesus answered to them, destroy this temple and in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. This is Herod's temple. It was rebuilt after it was destroyed. It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And when you raise it up in three days, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. What do we do with the temple? Jesus is the temple, friends. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. What Jesus is saying here is, in the temple, he's saying this, I am the true temple of God. I am the presence of God here, localized. Touch me, talk to me. Listen to my words. Come to me for life and life eternal. And so Jesus fulfills the temple. Now, if you know your, your, your history or even church history, uh, the temple does get destroyed in 70 AD uh, by, by Titus of the Romans. And it has not been built, rebuilt since. So 70 AD, this temple that Jesus is speaking of here literally came down. When, when Rome came in and sacked Jerusalem and, and burned it to the ground, uh, the temple has not been rebuilt since. Why? Because Jesus fulfilled it. It was the place where the sacrifices were held. Jesus was the sacrifice. We don't need sacrifices anymore. Jesus, according to Hebrews, is the, the great high priest. We don't need a high priest or a, a priestly system to offer sacrifices or to be mediators between uh, God and the people because Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. You see, and so the whole temple system and all of its activities find their culmination in Jesus. And here Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days, I'll raise it up. Meaning, the cross, the burial of Jesus, and the resurrection. And after the resurrection, his disciples remembered that he said this. Now you can imagine he says this and no one has any idea what he's talking about. <laughs> and he just lets it drop at that. He doesn't explain himself. He doesn't feel the need to like say, just wait guys, just wait. You'll see, you'll understand eventually. He just lets it fall to the ground. 
destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. No explanation. (laughs) And so you remember when he's being accused on trial, they're like, he said he would destroy the temple. You know, that he was accused. That was one of his his, uh, accusations of crime. And yet they remembered by the power of the Holy Spirit that he had said these things. And so Jesus finds uh, or we find the fulfillment of the temple in Jesus. Now let's look at Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. The writer of the Hebrews says, therefore brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Now, what was the holy place? You remember in the tabernacle, it was that inner tent. In the temple, it was the holy of holies that only the uh, high priest could go in once a year at the day of atonement. But here, we are entering into the holy place. Get this, friends. What only one person, after having sacrifice made for himself, could do only once a year, you as Christians are being invited to do whenever. Go into the presence of God. Go into the holy place. How? By the blood of Jesus. So we go into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way opened for us through the curtain. Remember the curtain that uh, was between the holy place and the most holy place? We go through the curtain into the holy of holies, that is through his flesh. We go by the body broken and bloodshed of Jesus. This is how we go into the presence of God. So if you want to imagine abstractly with me, imagine this giant curtain, but it's Jesus body broken and bloodshed. And behind it is the presence of God, the real manifest presence. You go through that body broken and bloodshed and you are now in the presence of God safe. That's the picture here. Verse 21. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, pointing to uh, the priestly rituals that had to be, they had to be sprinkled with blood and washed with with water. Okay, we are washed, we are cleansed of of a evil conscience. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Now, I want you to think about this, okay? This verse 23 connects to verse 24 and 25. And if most of you are used to reading your Bible, you're like, of course, (laughs) idiot. But I want to point it out to you because what we have a tendency to do because our our books of the Bible are sectioned off by verses, we're used to pulling verses out of context and we're just okay with that. Listen to verse 23 and then listen to 24 and 25 connected to it. Let us hold fast. The us as Christians, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. That means we stay trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. We persevere until we die. Now I know many friends, this is a sad reality, friends. A lot of people that I once walked with in the faith, they walk no more in the faith. And I, by God's grace, am still in the faith and going. This is many, many old friends that I have no longer believe in Jesus. They have turned to their own way to enjoy their sin. They got sick of repenting. They got sick of uh, resisting. They got sick of killing sin by the spirit. And they said, I don't want Jesus anymore. I don't want this faith anymore. I don't want the church anymore. I don't want Christian friends anymore. 
I'm out. And the writer of Hebrews here is saying, listen, hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. In other words, you stay believing and you stay committed to the word of God as the word of God. You don't leave it. You don't leave Christ. You don't leave the Holy Spirit. You don't leave the Father. How? Listen. For he who promised is faithful. That means God is the one who will be faithful to us. But look at verse 24, friends. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The connection here to God's presence, to us being able to enter God's presence and to us staying committed to Jesus is, friends, the church. Do you see that? Who are the ones who are going to encourage us in our faith every day? Who are the ones who we are supposed to not neglect meeting with? Who are the, who are the ones who we're not supposed to separate from? Your church. Okay, let me put it together now. You will be helped to not leave the faith by sticking with and in the people of God. Now, we who are reformed and Calvinistic, I'm one of them, and if you have no idea what that means, that's okay. But we who are reformed and Calvinistic tend to say, I just need God and I just need... What we tend to forget is we tend to forget that God uses means to accomplish his ends. We're like, God will do what God will do. Yes, he will. But he will do it with a means. And friends, do you realize that the means of God in part to keep you believing is the church? That's what this text is saying. So maybe... Maybe Eternal City is not for you. Okay, you need to find another church and commit as a means of sustaining grace, not saving grace. Jesus saves us from our sins, period. But there is something called the perseverance of the saints, meaning we keep believing. What we call that is sustaining grace. We need grace to keep going in the faith. God keeps us. Listen, and the way God keeps us, in part, is how? Being connected to your local church. Now, the reason I'm hammering in on this is because what happens after Jesus resurrects? What I mean, is Emmanuel gone? Is God not with us anymore? Look at 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Now, in 1 Corinthians 3, the you is the church, the people of God. Look at this. Do you, it's plural, do you not know that you, the Greek for you is plural, so the you here is the church. It's the church at Corinth. By extension, we could say eternal city. Do you not know that you are God's temple? Wait a minute. I thought Jesus was the fulfillment of the temple. He was. And now the people of God are the representation of God's presence. I'm going to show you this. Look, you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. 
If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Now, 3, 16 and 17 is not talking about individual Christians. It's talking about the people gathered. The you is plural. And so this follows right on the heels of divisions in the church. And so the warning here is if you are one who is divisive in a church, the way it's said here is if anyone destroys God's temple, context, division, if you're very divisive and you're in a local church and you are aiming to destroy a church, look what it says, God will destroy him. Now we heed the warnings of scripture, okay? Warnings are means of sustaining grace. It's like, I better not do that. Warnings are good. Are they not? And so here, we, friends, collectively are God's temple. Now look at, now look at three chapters later in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. So here now, our individual bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is said to live inside of Christians' bodies, just like the presence of God lived inside of the temple, just like the presence of God lived inside of the tabernacle. Now, the presence of God lives inside of us. And when the church comes together collectively, there's a collectiveness here. The Holy Spirit is here in a very unique way. Why? Because as Peter says, we are each like living stones being built into a house where God's presence dwells. Now listen, church buildings are not temples. God's presence does not dwell in this building. So we leave and God stays here. That's not how that works. When you leave, guess where God goes? With you. Because your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit now. And when we together come together as the church, all of us having the Holy Spirit, there's a uniqueness to God's presence here. And it's real. It's so real that if someone divides intentionally, God says, I will destroy you. Be careful. We should not be intentionally trying to tear apart a church. Now, you can read Corinthians and get the whole context. We don't have time, but I wanted to show you that. Now, let's look at, for the last piece, and we're done, the final fulfillment of God's presence, Emmanuel, the temple, the tabernacle. Okay, last text. In Revelation 21, 22 to 27, we see the last mention of the temple. It's resurrected, new heavens, new earth. And the question is, where's the temple? And I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the almighty and the lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of the Lord gives it light. Remember the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, the glory. And its lamp is the lamb. By its light, this new city, this glory city, by its light, the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. 
but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So here we see that God's presence was in the temple, but now God's presence is truly physically among the people in this new Jerusalem. I saw no temple. Why? Because the Lord God Almighty, the Father, and the Lamb, Jesus, are the temple. In other words, they find their final fulfillment manifestly in the new heavens and new earth. Friends, do you realize as a Christian, you are going to meet the physical risen Jesus one day? God is invisible. God is a spirit. This is what we learn in John 4. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. But somehow God does have a manifestation of his presence. And we see this all through the Old Testament. He comes down on Mount Sinai in thick clouds, lightning and fire and smoke, and it was God's presence. He manifests his presence in the pillar of cloud and the, and the fire by night. He manifests um, to um, the, the prophet's name is escaping me. Um, Elijah, he manifests himself to Elijah in, 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 in like an earthquake and in a fire and in a gush of wind, but he's not in those. He's in this still small voice. And so God has been manifesting himself throughout redemptive history, but most clearly in the person of Jesus Christ to the point where Jesus said, if you've seen me, Philip, my disciple, you've seen the father. I and the Father are one. He didn't say, I am the Father. He said, I and the Father are one. We are united. We are God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And friends, we are headed to a new heavens and a new earth where God's presence will freely dwell again, just like the garden before we disobeyed. So we're going all the way back to the beginning before sin entered the picture. Now, how do you know that? Because look at the last verse. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, Garden of Eden, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Friends, we have great hope out ahead of us because we are headed to this reality where God will be present with us once again. Now, you can go by prayer into God's presence anytime you like. Do you realize that? God promises to draw near to you when you draw near to him. We learned that in James 4. And so you can draw near to the God of the universe through Jesus, through what he accomplished with his life, death, burial, and resurrection, and by the Holy Spirit, you can be in God's presence now. But one day you will see with your own eyes the physical risen Christ and the manifestation of whatever the Father chooses to manifest as, whether it's light or thick cloud or whatever he chooses. But I believe we will see the presence of God and be in it. There's a difference between looking at the ocean and admiring its glory and beauty. And it's a whole nother thing to then go and jump in, isn't it? 
Friends, we get to jump in. (laughs) We're going to be in the presence of God for all eternity.